Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CAL. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. There's our voices crying out for freedom and democracy. These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world. Hello, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vitug, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. Malaysia is on the edge. For almost two years, the country has been in political turmoil. The ineffective handling of the pandemic and the economic downturn have brought poor Malaysians to their knees. The phenomenon of hashtag bendera puti or white flag took social media by storm. Households hang white flags on their windows, a distress signal asking for help. On the political front, a black flag movement begun to show protests against the government. Amid these upheavals, Malaysia had two prime ministers in a period of two years. What's happening? Our guest for this episode is Nick Nazmi Nick Ahmad, Member of Parliament and of the Opposition People's Justice Party. Nick Nazmi is very young, 39 years old, a youth leader and a reformist politician in Malaysia. He joins us from Kuala Lumpur. Nick Nazmi, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback. Thank you, Marites. Well, maybe let's start from the beginning. Because in 2018, Malaysia seemed to have held a lot of hope and promise when the opposition got together and dislodged UMNO. Yet today, years later, what led to this failed promise? I, yeah, I think definitely 2018 was uh, a time of great hope. Um, you know, this was the time when Donald Trump was still in power in, in, in the US. Um, there was a lot of um, uh, cynicism across the world, but people saw Malaysia uh, as a beacon of hope uh, of how a group of um, multiracial parties um, and you know the alliance between two great nemesis, uh, Mahade and Anwar, um, brought down the Barisan National Coalition which uh, in various forms have been in power since independence in 1957. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, the coalition was very uh, brittle. Uh, Mahade was still pretty much, I mean, you know, if, if we know uh, the history of Malaysia, much of the damage done to the institutions in Malaysia was actually in the hands of Mahade himself. Uh, in fact, you know, scandals that people attribute to Najib Razak, the Prime Minister then, uh, like 1MDB uh, and, and various other scandals uh, happened because of Mahathir. Um, and so, um, as much as we hope that uh, uh, Mahathir had uh, a change of heart, uh, you know, in his 90s now, um, it turned out that that was not the case. Uh, he pushed through... Um, 
uh, he pushed through uh, you know this idea that that we you know we we have to focus again on Malay unity uh, among the Malay community um, you know the the stereotypes um, I think uh, you know we are all familiar with in the region um, uh, which was popularized by the Malaysian sociologist uh, Syed Hussein Alatas uh, the myth of the lazy native uh, you know that idea was perpetuated um, that was that happened on one hand. On the other hand, you know, when when uh, they were true, you know, we there was the first, uh, for example, non-Malay finance minister since the 1970s. Uh, we had a non-Malay uh, attorney general, a non-Malay uh, chief justice uh, in the system. So that, on the other hand, created fears uh, and uh, and fueled the insecurity of the Malay community. Uh, and added to that was when the government pushed through. Uh, the ICERT and uh, Rome Statute uh, ratifications, which I believe is merited, um, but the timing was perhaps not right. Um, you know, we put that uh, at the forefront of our agenda without proper consultation. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, the government, the, the, the new government was cutting budgets, uh, subsidies to the poor, which were predominantly Malays. So that just fueled the insecurity. So I think uh, as a result, uh, and ultimately it was his determination not to hand over power to Anwar Ibrahim uh, as promised, um, that uh, was the undoing of our coalition. So uh, it seems that, well, it, it has been reported that Malaysian politics is really race based on race. So how does Malaysia get out of this? This, get out of this um, box of race-based politics? I believe it's, it needs to, there, there, there needs to be a long-term uh, work being done to undo this. Um, we see there are parties, I mean, uh, multiracial parties, uh, the DAP, which has been around for quite some time, uh, but it's predominantly non-Malay. Uh, then we have my party, the Justice Party or PKR, which is predominantly, well, I would say it's a bit more mixed, but it's led by Malays, um, Anwar Ibrahim's party. So my my view, and we have some other new parties that are, are coming up, which are multiracial in nature. Uh, and I think that's the first step. You know, if you have a multiracial party, it, it helps to get the country out of race-based uh, politics. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, if, if you're in another country, uh, if you're in the West, for example, uh, you know, you, you know that uh, if you're a Democrat, then you will uh, tack to the left during your party primaries um, to get the support of your party members. And then you move to the center in a general election to get the uh, vote of the general public, similarly in the UK and so on and so forth. In Malaysia, when you have race-based parties, a lot of um, um, party leaders will play the race card in order to appeal to their uh, party members. Uh, but in multiracial parties, you can't do that because um, um, PKR, for example, is 50% Malay, 25% Indian, 15% uh, Chinese, and the remainders are the uh, Borneo natives. So, you know, I can't play the race card in my party. And as much as my party went through a, a, a acrimonious split uh, during the fall of the Harapan government, um, the, 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 the factions were aligned, uh, were both relatively multiracial. 
so I, in a way, you know, um, it shows that the party has really advanced in terms of multiracialism. So I think uh, multiracial parties is the way forward. But there needs to be an ability to reach out to the Malay belt and to the Malay grassroots, uh, not to give up on them. That it frequently happens that um, um, liberals or or those in the cities tend to give up on 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 those in the kampongs. Uh, and think that uh, uh, you know they are beyond quote unquote salvation, uh, so just give up on them. And I think that that is a recipe for disaster. Uh, I mean, you learn. I mean, uh, again, I mean, when I look at the lessons of of uh, in the U.S., you know, when the Democrats give up um, with the white Americans in the Midwest, uh, then it's a recipe for disaster. So, so I think in Malaysia, you need to continue to reach out to those communities. Um, uh, and there is this problem where a lot of liberals and middle class, they speak in English, uh, where people in the kampong speak in Malay. Uh, so, you know, have more Malay discourses, reach out. And I think uh, that will help to, 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 uh, in your uh, reaching out process to them and to be able, not just for that they understand your agenda, but so that we, the leaders, can, can understand what their needs and aspirations are. Let's talk about the pandemic, Nick, Nick Nazmi, because that has that had an impact. It continues to have an impact on Malaysian politics. So, uh, in the former government, there was, a, I think, the the handling of the pandemic was characterized as inefficient, slow. And how would you compare that to today under uh, Prime Minister Sabri Ismail Sabri Yaakob? Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um... I think, uh, to be fair, uh, you know, I think um, our government was doing quite well with the pandemic, but it was still very much early stages. Uh, at that time, most of the countries around the world, in fact, none of them had, uh, you know, had even banned um, um, tourists from China. Uh, but after the government fell, uh, so there was vac a vacuum there. But to the government's credit, and I think more to the civil service credit, um, they managed to handle the COVID crisis quite well. And we were cited as one of the examples um, in the first few months. Uh, but then we had a state election in Borneo, in, in Sabah, uh, and uh, because of the political crisis, uh, and, and you know, that uh, sparked a third wave. Uh, and the effects were long-lasting. Uh, then the other part was, I think, uh, vaccination, which was also... Um, uh, very much uh, problematic the vaccination process. Although to be fair, eventually we did catch up, and you know I think we have done reasonably well. Um, so I think it was that part of 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 the handling of COVID uh, during Muhyiddin Yassin uh, premiership. You know, and and you had the hashtag of Kerajaan Gagal or failed government um, uh, trending across uh, the cyber space and that's when people notice how bad things were uh, and you know it's it's obviously a two two prong thing it's not just i mean obviously the most deplorable thing are, are the are the deaths but it's also about the economic uh, uh, effects of of covid you know the fact that we had to lock down uh, it was multiple lockdowns uh, people were fatigued um, and I remember, you know, to the point that when the government was so unstable because the uh, majority was wafer thin, uh, then they decided to declare emergency, uh, supposedly to fight COVID. But we saw that the cases just uh, rose and rose and rose from 3,000 to eventually, I think, 8,000 
um, uh, when when the emergency was uh, announced from January to to July uh, this year. So I think that was when people were really angry, uh, and it resulted in the fall of Muhyiddin. The new prime minister, um, in a way, he has benefited because um, the vaccination process has has uh, gone on quite well eventually. Um, and I think the effects of the pump priming, uh, although I would say it's still limited, but the effects is felt. People could, you know, they have money in their hands to spend. Um, so handling has improved, uh, but the concern I think going forward is that, you know, we have new variants. I, I know it's a concern across, uh, you know, the world, especially in Southeast Asia. Um, um, there are places like, you know, where in south of the peninsula in Johor, people there, a lot of people there depend on Singapore. Uh, whether to work, to go to school, or, or to get the Singaporean tourists to come. So, you know, if the borders are just starting to open, you know, if that those things close down again, you know, it's going to be difficult. So, uh, I think there's a slight improvement. Uh, but what I think is fundamental is that um, I think that, you know, there is a need for the government to still spend more, but not just to spend more, to restructure the economy. I mean, the way, if you look at many other countries, I mean, um, I certainly see it in, in Singapore, I certainly see it in Indonesia, where they use the opportunity of the crisis as a way to restructure the economy. Um, you know, so the old model of, of uh, the market-driven economy of the 90s, you know, we, we can't accept it un, uh, uncritically. So that's why I believe that that uh, we missed that opportunity in COVID to to really uh, restructure the economy, and and that will actually that would be the one that will make lasting change uh, in our society. So, you you mentioned the restructuring of the economy. So let's step back a bit, and since you're one of the leading reformist politicians in Malaysia, what do you think are the reforms that should be achieved in the short term, and maybe you could talk about the long term as well. Well, I just focus on a few key things. Um, I think when you talk about health, for example, uh, Malaysia, a lot of, um, you know, we, for whatever reason, I think it's not something uh, unique to Malaysia. It's an Asian problem where at one time, you know, if you scored straight A's in school, everyone will be a doctor. <laughs> uh, and uh, Malaysia, we were very generous. We allowed uh, not we we had a limited number of public universities offering medicine, but we allowed many private universities to open. We also recognized more and more overseas universities, um, you know, to do medicine. So as a result, we have a lot of graduates coming in, and the government can no longer afford to hire them, and they are only given short-term contracts. Um, so I think uh, that has been a major burning uh, sore point in, in, in the country because they are at the front lines of dealing with COVID uh, and they are uncertain about their future, you know, unlike the senior doctors who are given permanent government jobs with pensions and whatnot. So I think that is something I agree that, that it's not easy to deal with it, but there has to be a better solution, uh, maybe longer term contracts, uh, you know, and all those things. Um, Secondly, I think uh, the, the other part is on education because the disruption on education is real. Um, you know, the, the, although we had uh, distance learning, whether online or offline, uh, you know, people learn differently. People who, who, have, uh, who can afford uh, a tablet for every kid uh, with good internet connection will definitely study differently uh, compared to someone who relies on a small handphone uh, or have, who have to share it among siblings. 
Um, we had a case in 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 uh, in um, Borneo, in Malaysian Borneo, where one of the uh, students, university students, had to climb a tree. Uh, I mean, you think that's from you know fifty years ago or something, but no, it's happening today. So I think that's where the education inequality is real because we always see education as the great equalizer. Uh, that's how Malaysia's success has been in the past by by investing a lot in education. And I think that's where we really need to to focus on. Um, so so uh, that is something that that the government really needs to to uh, address. So when i talk about uh, and and the third part of of restructuring the economy it's really to address the issue of uh what you call that the in, um uh, jobs and wages um we saw in malaysia malaysia was among the beneficiaries of covid in the sense that we had a lot of rubber glove factories uh and i think almost every director in that company became billionaires in terms of malaysian ringgit uh, instantly because of the rise in uh, demand for rubber gloves. But uh, then there was an outbreak, a COVID outbreak among the workers uh, because they, foreign workers, they were put in very bad uh, housing, you know, 20, 30 people in one room and whatnot. So those are things that we need to address. I mean, Malaysia can't be relying on foreign workers forever. And um, I mean, we need to give better wages, uh, better conditions if we are to attract um our workers to 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 uh, to, to to really uh, invest in the workers um so this this idea of socio-economic inequality i think is something to address uh, and i believe in a more reformist approach uh you know um through whether nudging the market or, or government policies uh before it's too late you know before people uh, really get angry and and there is a danger of that if people are out of touch or the government is out of touch with what's happening uh, out there among the public. Well, Nick Nazmi, I just uh, was struck by your the anecdote of this school um, kid who had to climb the tree to get an internet connection. Well, that is happening here in the Philippines as well. <laughs> so you are not alone. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I just wanted also to know more about the migrant workers. Are this because many Filipinos work? In Malaysia, are these primarily Filipinos who work in the rubber factories? Uh, no, I think, uh, I mean, just um, at the top of my head, uh, I would presume that a lot of them are Indonesians and Bangladeshis, maybe Nepalese. Uh, Filipinos are in the domestic, uh, um, in the domestic help sector. Uh, maybe restaurants, uh, you know, some in the uh, hospitality. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Malaysia is very, very reliant. I think, you know, we are a country of 35 million. I think the legal numbers are only about 2 million. Uh, but you have probably another 4 or 5 more million uh, who are not registered. Um, and it's common in, in Malaysia. So obviously, the moment you, they're not registered, then I mean, even among those who are legal, there are various um, ways that the employer or the agents um, um, uh, become predators and, and exploit them. But it, you can imagine what happens to those who are not registered, right? So uh, it's it's uh, we are very reliant. And I think because uh, Malaysia started off very well, I mean, similar to Philippines in a sense, um, in the 60s, we were at par with Singapore, with Korea, with Taiwan. Uh, and the way we competed at that time was on low wages. 
Um, but uh, and that was what you know the other countries did. But obviously Taiwan, Singapore, and all that they moved up the value chain. Uh, they invested in technology. Um, wages went up. You know eventually, and and people benefited. But in Malaysia, we managed to get away without moving up the value chain, but instead on importing more and more foreign workers. Um, so less. I mean, I know very little Malaysians want to work anymore in in factories. It's not seen as um, you know they they don't find it to to be worth it with the wages. Uh, you know they they work in the gig economy to de deliver food. You know um, um, they they want to do some office work even if it's very menial. Uh, you know they get to wear you know a, a shirt and work in the aircon uh, or in the service sector. I mean there's a lot of Malaysians. I mean uh, restaurants and all that, but not um, in the factories uh, in the uh, in the uh, oil palm plantations where it's really big in Malaysia. And I think that's where we really miss out. Um, so, you know, instead of competing on, on, on in terms of technology, in terms of capital intensive uh, aspects, no, we is still in terms of uh, low wage. And, you know, we can't do that for long because Indonesia, um, you know, Vietnam, I mean, you know, they, they easily outbid us in terms of um, wages. Maybe our advantage was English, uh, but you don't need English to to plan uh, all palm or, or you know uh, you know those so those sort of advantages are not no longer there. Um, so I think that that's where um, the foreign worker thing is really serious, um, uh, where we are so so uh, dependent and and as a result it allows the the employers to keep our wages low as well, uh, because when we go to eat and whatnot the restaurants the prices are relatively cheap so far because we pay the foreign workers so low. Okay, uh, let's talk about the opposition and uh, are, you, are you ready to take over and how do you plan to uh, take out the con your country from your cur its current predicament? Yeah, I mean, I think I would describe uh, the state for a while, you know, the opposition was in a state of hangover after we lost power. Um, because, you know, I mean, it was pretty much the first time we were in power for, for most of us. You know, for I, I've never been in any other party. So, you know, this was our first time in federal power. And, and in Malaysia, the federal government has a disproportionate amount of power compared to the states. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so as I mentioned, we made a few mistakes. Uh, to be fair, we did a few good reforms as well. Um, but, you know, um, ultimately it, 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 it collapsed. Uh, so for a few months, we were still uh, finding our way. And, and as in Malaysia, the opposition is based on a coalition. Um, and in Malaysia for so long, because that's been the governing model, um, we've relied on pre-election coalitions. Meaning, you know, you go to an election and you already, uh, we are first past the post, Westminster system, parliamentary system. So when you go to the elections, you already divide the seats, you avoid three corners, um, you know, and, and, and uh, in a way it works well in the past. It worked well. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons in the UK that the, the Liberal Democrats and Labour have not been able to win because they, they, they don't have this understanding. But uh, the model is also coming under strain. Um, both in the government side and also on our side, 
Um, and, and, you know, I think um, we, we just had a by-election in Melaka. We are going through a by-election, uh, a state election in Sarawak. So this sort of uh, um, elections will be a test uh, for the Harapan coalition. Um, we've been together for a long time, if we trace back. It, it really goes back to the reformasi years uh, when Anwar Ibrahim was sacked. Uh, that was more than 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, moving forward, you know, that whether we need a real solid uh, coalition with a formal structure, uh, whether we need one logo uh, like we did in 2018 and, and since then, or whether we can go back to the previous model where the coalition is a bit looser. Uh, and, and yeah, and maybe one day even um, uh, post-election coalitions. And, and on the other side, the government side, they have done post-election coalitions. Um, so that is something to think about. It, it's something to, to consider. Uh, so, but what I believe is, so, you know, the, what, the way I'm telling you is that oh, there's a lot of challenges for the opposition uh, to, to uh, take over the government. But it's very fluid both ways. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, I think the politics as usual is no longer going to be there. Um, so it's going to be a bit more fluid. And in that sense, uh, that is an opportunity for us. Uh, but uh, I think people, you know, they want to see, uh, I mean, I know Ibrahim is leading us for the election. Uh, but, you know, we, we the good thing for the Justice Party is that we have a lot of young leaders, uh, but those need to be put in the forefront. Uh, and, and, you know, we need to really connect with uh, the voters. Uh, if we just talk about losing power, about being betrayed, I don't believe it connects with the voters. What they want to hear is how do we solve their bread and butter issues. Uh, yeah, and that, that would be the, the basic uh, demand from the voters. So I think you've partially answered my next question about mistakes to be avoided. But is there any one big lesson that you've learned from your experience with the pre-election coalition? I think, um, you know, we, we need to, um, we, whatever it is, you know, whichever party we talk to, uh, whether it's the Justice Party or our, our friends in the coalition and even other parties, I think the way forward is to always look outside your core voters. Um, obviously, you need to take care of them because um, if they don't go out to vote, then, you know, you lose that chunk of voters. Uh, that's what happened in Melaka. But beyond that, you need to think about what the floating voters or, 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 or the swing voters are thinking because they decide the elections. Um, if you are, if there's too much uh, navel gazing, you know, just looking inward, uh, then there is danger, the danger of missing that point. That's why I, I spoke in the beginning about, you know, sometimes, um, you know, the opposition base is very urban. Uh, our loudest supporters tend to be the English-speaking uh, middle class, you know, and I get a lot of support from them, and I, I'm thankful for that. But we really, really need to go out there and really, really need to roll our sleeves um, and, and work on the ground with the people who are in the so-called Malay belt, uh, people in Borneo, uh, you know, and they have, uh, their views are, are different than, than what we think. Uh, so if there is, you know, that condescending view that, you know, or oh, they don't know better, people in Kuala Lumpur know better, 
because we are more educated and all that. Then I think we we are going to be we are going to be taught a you know a very harsh lesson uh, because this democracy, right? It's it's ultimately a, a game of numbers, uh, and you know we cannot uh, uh, underestimate the wisdom of the people. But the problem is we've never had that courage of really being frank with them. Uh, and, and I think that's crucial. And, and um, I think that's a mistake to avoid when, when we talk to these voters. Uh, involve them, listen to them. Um, and, and I think uh, we will be able to, to uh, get a better result in, in the elections. I think these are lessons that can be uh, learned as well here. I mean, in the Philippines. Anyway, that's another topic we can talk about. But there seems to be now cooperation, a bipartisan effort between uh, the opposition and PM Jacob. And there was an agreement signed. Maybe you can just briefly talk to us about this cooperation agreement. Yeah. So, uh, you know, after the collapse of the uh, Pakatan Harapan government uh, of our government in February 2020, February 2020. Um, you know, then you know there were attempts. As I said, the opposition was still finding its feet, but eventually we we did try to take over the government uh, by getting some other MPs to come over, um, but it did not work out. And and finally, uh, you know, the government tried to declare emergency. Uh, but finally, the government did collapse, but it fell to another AMNO leader, uh, Ismail Sabri Yaakob. Um, so I think for, for us at that time was that, you know, the, the government's mandate is going to expire by uh, 2023 anyway, uh, the, the second half of 2023. So, uh, so, or rather the first half of 2023. So how we saw things was that, um, you know, it's only... I, I don't think it's fair to the voters if, you know, there's still more political instability. Because at that time, the numbers was 114, sorry, 114109, if I'm not, sorry, 112109, one, one, okay? Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, sorry, 114107, uh, between 114 for Ismail Sabri and 107 for Anwar. Uh, so... Uh, the, the problem that we saw was that uh, it's not going to be stable. Um, so we decided that rather than uh, continue to destabilize the government, uh, you know, at a time of uh, and a health and economic uh, disaster, so we decided that uh, we can uh, sign a memorandum of understanding where we we give them some support in terms of confidence in terms of passing budget uh but in return they have to implement key reforms um it was not popular uh our call many of our core voters saw that as a betrayal um but a few key things have happened is that for the first time all mps are or at least all mps who are party to the agreement uh, are given equal allocation uh, at the same time, um, um, we are pushing through the lowering of uh, voting age from uh, 21 to 18. This was our policy. We amended the constitution when we were in power, but the government had then dragged it when under the new leadership. So we met, pushed it through and it seems to be happening uh, and it should be implemented by next year. 
the status you know of uh, the Borneo states because um, they uh, they have a special position under the constitution uh, it's also going to be amended soon uh, the constitution to recognize that um, uh, yeah so and other uh, including uh, the parliamentary reform the select committees previously uh, select committees uh, it did not exist before we came to government or very limited when we came to government we we introduced them but it was still controlled by the executive uh today you know it's much more balanced between the opposition and the government so there, there are a few key things um to implement and i think you know um the, there's a steering committee that monitors the progress of the reforms uh, there's a clear timeline over when to deliver these reforms uh so i i think that uh, it's something that is positive um overall and um hopefully it reduces this tribalism in politics that, that has been you know uh i think very deep in malaysia uh, especially since the anwar mahade crisis uh in the 90s so you know if you you don't have this uh, winner take all system uh then i think the dem democracy will win and and uh funnily enough i mean i was a backbencher when we were in power i was quite critical at, at times when i said that sometimes you know we forget about uh, reforms when we become government right we think that oh since we are in government we don't need to give uh, equal allocation to the opposition because we are in government now right and then when we are out of government we make a lot of noise so hopefully this sort of things you know people will start to realize because both government and opposition MPs have felt have tasted power and they have also tasted being in opposition so there's a greater appreciation about uh, not being or not having a winner take all um, approach and uh, maybe let's talk about yourself at this point because you've been a leader, a youth leader for some time. Uh, what, to your mind, are the aspirations of the young people of Malaysia today? Yeah, I mean, I'm technically I'm no longer youth leader. Uh, <laughs> we our party's uh, youth wing is uh, youth uh, age limit is 35, which is one of the lower ones in Malaysia. Uh, but I was, I was a youth leader of the party for three years and also of the coalition. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, you know, they, they are very critical. They are very demanding. Uh, and you can imagine that those who are entering, those who are 17 and above, because they'll be 18 next year, 17 and above, uh, after what they've gone through in education, in university, in jobs, they have a very pessimistic outlook in that sense. Um, you know, this is the COVID generation, uh, what they take for granted, you know, if they did well in school, they go, they get, they get to go to university or they get a, a certain job that pays them a certain amount of money. That's not hold true anymore because of COVID. So that makes them very, uh, pessimistic. Um, uh, but <clears throat> on the other hand, they are also not tribal in their politics. There are places in Malaysia where you know uh, if you're of a certain family from a certain kampung that they are going to vote a certain way, uh, <laughs> you know, from cradle to grave. Uh, but uh, you don't see that anymore among, I mean, you see less of that among the younger generations because, and more of them are, are voted for us. Okay, but so we don't have, we have a core vote, but our core vote is smaller in many places compared to uh, the government parties, uh, because they, they tend to think, they tend to be more critical, 
so we can't take them for granted. And um, which is, I think, bad for politicians, but it's good for politics because it means that it keeps us on our feet. Uh, they don't buy political rhetoric, uh, but they want to see uh, their, our, their issues being championed. So a lot of bread and butter issues, jobs and all that. But it's also about reaching out to them. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I have trouble. I mean, I'm 39. I find the 18 year olds, they're a whole different world, uh, <laughs> different than me, right? And, and you know, they, they are on TikTok. Uh, I, I, I am on TikTok, but I struggle to, to make sense or, or <laughs> to enjoy it. But it's something that, that I think, I, and it's a challenge for politics across the world, um, but we need to be relevant and, and we can't ask them whether we like it or not. And as we complain, we say the attention span is shorter uh, and all that. But well, the, the world has changed and, and you know, um, we can't we can't ask them to change uh, to our world, but we have to understand, you know, where they are coming from. How about you, Nick Nasmi? What made you join politics? I mean, you you really know a lot about what's happening in your country and you're doing your you're making your own contribution. What, what made you join politics? Uh, I've, my family has always been politically conscious. Um, uh, I've had um, family members who joined politics. Uh, uh, we are from the east coast of Malaysia, from a very uh, religious family, uh, Muslim family of Muslim scholars. I mean, my great grandfather, grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, my, my father is, uh, was a civil servant, senior civil servant. Um, so there's always that sort of background to me uh, when I was raised. Uh, but what really I think uh, struck my mind was when I, I, I read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, you know, so you have a black civil rights leader and, and at first, you know, his approach was uh, sort of a black supremacy approach uh, to champion the cause of the blacks. Uh, but when, you know, he, he converted to Islam and, and he performed the Hajj and, and he saw the universality of Islam and the justice. So I, I wondered to myself, Malaysia is a Muslim majority country. Uh, we are also a very multiracial country. And yet you don't see enough of that. When they talk about Islam, it's more about us against them as opposed to the justice element or mercy element of Islam. Um, so when reformacy happened in 1998 i was still in school uh but you know when because i know i was the few former amno leaders who after being kicked out from amno he decided to form a multiracial party uh others will form another you know another clone of amno uh mahade tengkurazali uh, and others so when anwar did that uh, i felt uh, that uh, this was something that was of interest to me. Um, uh, yeah, and I started helping out. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a very small group of people, very idealistic. Um, uh, and <clears throat> I think I was fortunate because in 2008, we've gone through two bad elections. So not many people wanted to stand. Uh, I was 26 years old. I did, I mean, to be honest, I did have plans to run in elections, but but not at that age. But uh, because of lack of candidates, I was pushed into <laughs> elections. <laughs> and we, you know, from one seat, parliamentary seat, we ended up with 31 parliamentary seats. Uh, so since then, I think that, you know, that was how I came into politics. And, um, but, you know, being in it long enough, you realize that it's a long, it's a marathon. Uh, 
uh, it's not a short sprint. Uh, so there's a lot of energy, patience that needs to be uh, there in order to survive. Any parting words for our listeners and viewers? I mean, in Malaysia, who, how do you inspire them to be like you or to, to, to be engaged in politics? Well, I think for, for those who, you know, when we're talking about liberal, liberals and Democrats, uh, most, most of us, you know, are, are reformers, you know, by nature. Uh, so when we talk about reform, um, it's going to be a long battle. Um, but uh, like, like uh, Robert F. Kennedy once said, you know, like the, the uh, arch of the, the arc of the moral universe is long, you know, but it bends towards justice. So I think that's something to to take um, to 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 be comforted by. Uh, there, you know, it's like a roller coaster, right? I mean, if you look at in the short term, there'll be highs and lows. Uh, the more hopeful you are, then the more disappointed you'll get when when things don't work out, and that is often the case in politics. And and um, politicians will often have to sell hope in order to 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 get their voters to support them, right? So, so you, I do get people who then, you know, after a while they get disenchanted, um, and I understand that, right? And 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 you know, I get into long WhatsApp uh, debates with them, uh, but ultimately, I, I think you know, if they see it from the long term perspective, then they'll understand. Um, and and it takes a lot of patience. Um, it takes a lot of um, uh, uh, grit uh, in order to go through uh, this process, but. Uh, you know, I think it's part and parcel. I mean, uh, never if people say that the things that we are pushing through reforms, uh, more, you know, democratic reforms, uh, uh, being more humane, you know, it's not something that's alien to our traditions, whether it's our, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, in Asia, in uh, our religions, in our faiths. Um, so, you know, don't let them occupy that ground. Uh, I think that that's one of the lessons to learn because if you give up and you you just say that uh, you know a religion teaches you to be uh, reactionary or, or op uh, oppressive uh, or whatnot, you know then uh, no and and you don't challenge that notion, you allow that to to just uh, continue and and for people to believe that, uh, and I think it's very relevant. I mean, it's not just in Malaysia. I think it's uh, or in, or in Asia. I see the same thing in 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 uh, America, for example. Um, you know, when, when the liberals there uh, give up on, on that uh, argument, they allow the extremists to occupy it. So I think but it's very relevant here. And, and whether, you know, it's in Malaysia, it's in Philippines, Indonesia. Uh, so it's something that we, we have to continue and persevere. Uh, and I remain ho hopeful, you know, that, that uh, somehow or other we'll, we'll make it through. Thank you so much, Nick Nazmi. It's a fascinating conversation and really good luck on this marathon and I'm really um, getting becoming more hopeful after talking to people like you who have the long view and I'm sure you have many, many more years in politics. So thank you so much, Nick Nazmi. Thank you for keeping us company. Keep pushing back against autocracy. Keep fighting for democracy. The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vitug, Lito Arlegue, and Paulo Zamora.
with creative input from Jaja Hanolo, administrative assistance from Audi Frias and Chelsea Caballero, and editing by Point B Multimedia.